We rejoin our interview with Scott Ritter as he is explaining the nefarious goals of our U.S. foreign policy during the 1990s around our friend Boris Yeltsin. The goal of preventing Russia from ever re-emerging as a power capable of uh, standing on its own two feet and, and standing up against uh, the United States and the West, which is, of course, exactly what happened when Boris Yeltsin resigned in 1999 and turned the presidency over to the accidental president of Vladimir Putin. Putin was the antithesis of everything the United States wanted in a Russian president. He was strong. He was smart. He was independent. He was uncorruptible. He basically put Russia on a track. And I'm not going to go into the history of it except to say this. I challenge anybody listening to this, anybody, find one Russian city that's worse off today than it was in 1999. You won't. What you'll see is without exception, Russia has been transformed, has been rebuilt. Is it perfect? No. But is it a whole lot better than it was when the United States was calling the shots? Yes. And now you know the origins of the animus against Putin on the part of the West, because Putin has rebuilt Russia in an image that benefits Russia, not the American empire. And that's why we are so dead set against the guy. And that's interesting because it's important to understand why he has such broad support now, even in the midst of a war. I mean, people have seen that over the years. We claim all of his support comes from absolute authoritarian repression, when in fact, what you just said are objective living condition improvements. Like, you know, are you better off than you were four years ago, the Ronald Reagan, where they absolutely are and realize that and therefore largely support this government. I think that goes without saying, too. If you go back and study American history and take a look at the Great Depression and, you know, in the role played by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in getting the United States out of that depression, two things emerge. One, the love of the American people for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mean, the man was a veritable dictator. I know we called him president, but he served what, four terms, <laughs> or was elected four times, you know, longest serving president. That's why we had to pass an amendment to prevent this from happening again, because he became an institution, a you know, cult of personality, so to speak. And, and Americans, for the most part, loved him because he was viewed as the man who saved America from the Great Depression. And I bring that up because what happened to Russia in the 1990s was orders of magnitude worse than the Great Depression. I just want to make that point to every American out there. We talk about the Great Depression as this calamity that struck our nation. What happened to Russia in the 1990s was orders of magnitude worse than the Great Depression. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the average Russian and remember how Americans loved Franklin Delano Roosevelt for being their savior. And now imagine how the Russians feel about Vladimir Putin a man who has ruled longer than Franklin Delano Roosevelt and accomplished so much more than Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. Without half of the obstacles, Franklin Delano Roosevelt didn't have the obstacles confronting Vladimir Putin. Roosevelt didn't have foreign powers trying to undermine you, trying to sabotage you, trying to weaken you. Uh, he only had to deal with a domestic problem. His foreign policy problems didn't emerge till late in his term. Vladimir Putin, from the very beginning, had to deal with not only you know, unimaginable domestic problems, but a, an international climate led by the United States that was seeking to destroy him, destroy him. And the war in Ukraine is the direct result of a 20-year campaign run by the United States and NATO and the European Union to undermine, destabilize, delegitimize, and ultimately destroy Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. They have failed. 
But when people say, what are the roots of this conflict? The roots of this conflict come out of the rebuilding of Russia once Vladimir Putin became president and the anger that this engendered on the part of the United States and the West, which wanted Russia to revert and still wants Russia to revert to a Boris Yeltsin type colonial status. I just want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with former weapons inspector, writer, and lecturer, Scott Ritter. Again, this is a fascinating history and connecting it to the present that's so important. In order to understand what's going on in the present, there has been a complete divorcing of any information and real knowledge about the past. And that's why it's so easy to, I think, propagandize the general public, at least in this country, Scott. And so thank you for sharing that history. Do you mind continuing on this Ukraine-Russia issue? Go to the issue of these biolabs that they've completely dropped off the radar. What is the significance of that from your perspective as, you know, with your intelligence past and all of that, your insights into what those were all about? These were what? U.S.-run biolabs in the Ukraine, originally denied by the U.S. as Russian propaganda claims, but in fact were several dozen biolabs yet to be fully explained. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of and what they may indicate for the general public? Well, the, the biolabs emerged, again, in this chaos that, that existed in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. There was tremendous concern on the part of the United States that the Soviet nuclear, biological warfare, chemical warfare enterprises were vulnerable to uh, having their products and their uh, brain trust siphoned away by nefarious elements. So we immediately began to engage the new Russian government and the governments of the various former Soviet republics in an effort to bring these weapons of mass destruction capabilities under control. On, on nuclear, we, we sought to remove all nuclear weapons and fissile material from the former uh, Soviet republics either having the weapons transferred to Russian control or being dismantled and uh, disposed of under American supervision. Same in chemical weapons. We sought to identify these weapons, identify the production facilities, and then start to uh, eliminate these chemical stockpiles. We did this through something called the uh, Cooperative Threat Reduction or the Nunn-Luger Act. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on this. Uh, and one of the areas that we also did uh, this work, this cooperative threat reduction, was in the biological weapons field. Russia, the Soviet Union, had a massive biological weapons capability. And we were very concerned that uh, the biologists uh, that were affiliated with these would um, sell a biological agent uh, to um, nefarious actors, malign actors like Iran, North Korea. I mean, this is the definition of the United States. You know, but anybody out there who might want access to biologic weapons in Iraq could get them from these, these bio labs. And also they could take the scientists uh, who were now basically unemployed and unemployable in the collapsed economies of the former Soviet Union, and uh, that these scientists could be lured away and put to work to produce uh, these deadly agents in other countries. So our goal in engaging it early on was actually uh, commendable and laudable. The idea was to go in there and bring the deadly pathogens under control to make sure that they weren't accessible by, by the wrong people, to catalog them, and then ultimately to, to destroy them. And then to provide gainful employment to these former biological weapons scientists so that we, A, we would know where they are, and B, we would uh, keep them from replicating biological weapons capabilities elsewhere. 
And so that was the genesis moment of this biological laboratory enterprise that, that has emerged in Ukraine and elsewhere. Not a bad thing, to be honest. But here's the problem. The United States has a very one-sided interpretation of what the rules are regarding biological weapons. You know, we are signatories to the Biological Toxin and Weapons Convention. And so we are obligated under that not to retain biological pathogens that are prohibited and not to uh, allow them to be produced. And yet in Ukraine, we have violated both of these elements. We've taken over former Soviet biological facilities. And in those facilities were samples of the various deadly pathogens that had been produced during Soviet times that had been weaponized. But we didn't destroy them. We didn't dispose of them. They, we, we kept them in storage. This is a is is this the essence of the Russian concern, or do they? What, what was their claim that that these were not destroyed as they should have been? Well, I mean, that's one of the Russian concerns is that the former pathogens that should have been destroyed weren't destroyed, and we know this because the head of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's biological section, so division, so to speak, in February of this year, right before the Russians invaded, said he was very concerned that the Russians might damage some of these refrigerated storage facilities that were in Ukraine. And here's the important part, because he said, Ukrainian scientists being like scientists everywhere else probably retained some of their past work. And if the refrigeration is shut down and the, and the, the security breached, this could be released into the atmosphere. And the first thing in my mind is going, what do you mean they retained it? You've been in control of these things since 2005. Why do they still exist? Why are they even there? Why are we talking about this potential? Why didn't you get rid of them? And that's a question that needs to be asked because it is a de facto violation of the, the Biological Toxin and Weapons Convention. The retention of prohibited pathogens such as anthrax and botulinum toxin and others, perhaps weaponized smallpox, all there. Why were they retained? Nobody's answered that question yet, other than to say, oh, well, it's the Ukrainian scientists because they're very narcissistic and they want to hold on to, they don't want to destroy their work. So to be clear, Scott, the United States was fully aware of these labs and was partnering with Ukraine in the actual, I don't know if you'd say the operation of these labs, but they would have known the contents of what was in the labs that, that should have been destroyed and, and it was not destroyed. Is that right? Correct. But that's not even the worst of what happened. The worst of what happened is that the United States, in, in order to find gainful employment for these Ukrainian scientists, in effect, commercialized this, the, the, this biological enterprise. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of money involved in this, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Even though we call it the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, every contract is led out to a civilian entity who then oversees or manages the contract on behalf of the Department of Defense. But they have to come up with work, a work product, a work schedule. Now, initially, to find employment for these Ukrainian scientists, all you had to do is just basic domestic biological surveillance, you know, to go out and collect samples here to make sure there's not, you know, an outbreak of cholera or diphtheria or anything else that's going on out there. And so you, you let a contract, A, to refurbish a former Soviet facility, and then B, to build a, a new facility that is purpose-built to carry out some of this research and to provide even more employment opportunities for Ukrainian scientists. So you let it out to a, a contract. So you, we'll write the bid. We'll, we'll, we'll say, this is what we want. We want somebody to build this new biological facility, and we want them to come up with work for the scientists. 
So that contract gets let out and then people bid on it. They write proposals and then the proposals are submitted and the government picks one and they'll, they'll hire a vendor, say Raytheon or Hughes or somebody. And they'll come in and they'll oversee this contract. They'll manage this contract on behalf of the U.S. government. And that's fine. Now that facility's built. They need more business. And so people keep sending in proposals for additional business. And a lot of it got shot down. But the one thing that kept getting approved was biological labs. This was a template of success. And so more contracts were suggested, more programs suggested, and they were let out. They sort of cookie cuttered these uh, facilities throughout Ukraine, but they need work. And so gradually this work transitioned away from conventional domestic biological surveillance type activity into what they call defensive biological things. That is, you have to consider what the potential could be down the road, whether from nature or from man. And this is where it gets murky because the American definition of a defensive biological weapons program is to produce an offensive biological weapons program and then test it, use that product your defenses. And, and how do we know this happened? Again, let's go back to October 2001, right after 9-11. If everybody recalls the anthrax letters that were sent around, that anthrax wasn't produced in the basement of some mad scientist. That anthrax was produced by the United States government in uh, Utah, Dugway, Utah, Twilly, Utah, uh, as part of a defensive biological warfare program where they would bring in first responders, hazmat technicians, et cetera, and train them to operate in a live agent environment. So they would take this anthrax, uh, they would build, they would manufacture this anthrax, dry powdered anthrax, the most dangerous kind, uh, and then use that to test the equipment, test procedures, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it was manufactured by the United States. And they said, well, that was defensive only, yet we saw that even a little bit of that anthrax could be used offensively to shut down the U.S. postal system. Interesting. It's like a plausible deniability type of thing under the aegis of also being in another country. So it certainly seems to have the potential of being kind of like a cover to continue to develop biological offensive capabilities under the guise of defensive capabilities. We don't well, I'm not going to go there. That, that requires, that requires a, a giant leap. That well, no, no. Americans... I think when you say... When you say it, it's murky, it gets murky. That's what I'm suggesting. Is that yeah, well, it's, it's not, definitely alleging, murky. I'm not alleging that either. I'm just saying, but there certainly yeah. uh, creates the environment where that were certainly that well, type of. Let me, let, me, let me put it this way: If yeah, the Iraqi government had sought to develop a quote-unquote defensive biological weapons program along exactly. the lines of the United States, exactly. we would have shut it down and claimed they were pursuing an offensive biological weapons program. But we get away with it because we're Americans, of course, and we're not evil. We're not bad. There's no ill intent. But, right. you know, the Russians now are looking at some of these programs and saying, this makes no sense. Right. Why are you seeking to develop a biological agent that appears to be designed, genetically designed, only to affect Russians? And then talk about a vector of, you know, migratory birds that would exclusively disseminate this uh, agent uh, under Russian territory. You know, how do you justify this under defense? And this this is where we are today. Russia has tried to take this case in accordance with the Biological Weapons, uh, Toxin Weapons Commitment to the Security Council of the United Nations. The United States has vetoed it. You know, so there is no recourse for Russia except to disseminate this information in public. And then it's immediately shot down as, you know, Russian propaganda, Russia different disinformation. But yes, if there was anybody in Congress worthy of the name, they would be holding hearings right now to try and find out 
just what the heck was going on inside Ukraine. Right. Hey, well, listen, we just have a few more minutes with you. And I wanted to, if you're okay with it, pivot to the last commentary by you to fill us in a little bit. But there's this reports that these Patriot missiles, which I'm not even sure how much more it extends the range of the current missile systems that are, are available in Ukraine, and you can let us know that, but but that these Patriot missiles are, are not just considered, but seem to be a done deal that take an extraordinary amount of training. So they might not be in the theater proper for a little bit, but John Helmer, he's a Russian-based journalist, was talking about a potential military solution in which it would be like a couple of hundred kilometer DMZ in order to keep the HIMARS range from reaching the, the, the Donbass, that type of thing. How does this change that type of potential? And, and do you give any credence to Helmer's claim that this w- might be a possible way to militarily end the deal, have a Western rump state in Ukraine and this DMZ of, of a significant distance that would keep people on both sides of the border from these longer range HIMARS attacks? Well, I mean, if, if that is the solution, then it's a strategic Russian defeat. You know, Russia has said from the beginning that this is not just the special military operation. It's about the liberation of the Donbass, now the securing of the new Russian territories in Crimea. But there is also denazification, demilitarization. So if you have a DMZ that allows a Nazi regime, which is what Zelensky regime is, to survive and thrive, and a NATO proxy army, which is what the Ukrainian military is, to survive and be rebuilt, and you lost. Ukraine won. And you know Russia will forever be fighting a low-grade war of attrition in the South. This is literally the dumbest thing imaginable. I'm not saying that uh, you know it isn't going to happen because nations are capable of doing dumb things. But there, there's a couple things. One, a DMZ implies some sort of negotiated settlement. Who is Russia going to negotiate with? Who does Russia trust? No one. Angela Merkel has just made it official. The Germans lied from the very beginning about the Minsk Accords, which means the French lied, which means the Americans lied, which means NATO lied, which means everybody lied. And the Russians know that now. Vladimir Putin has come out and said that one of the great mistakes was believing in diplomacy in 2014. He should have finished the job then. Now, if Putin is realizing that he made a mistake in trusting the West to negotiate a peaceful resolution to the Ukraine problem in 2014, that the proper solution would have been to achieve a military victory by Russia at that time. Why would he replicate that mistake today doing the exact same thing? I don't think the Russians negotiate anything. I think the Russians are going to dictate. I think tragically this war is going to be fought until Ukraine is destroyed as a modern nation state and NATO and the European Union have depleted themselves economically and militarily and will be basically lying prostate at the feet of Russia, uh, begging for some sort of European security framework that will uh, preserve them. You know, the, the West has gone too far. And in the hubris of the West, what, sending in some Patriot missiles is going to alter the uh, military balance of power? Are you high? Do you understand how poor the Patriot performs? When has the Patriot been a game-changing system? It wasn't in the Gulf War in 1991 when it failed to shoot down any Scud missiles. It wasn't during during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003 where it shot down more Allied aircraft than Iraqi aircraft. It wasn't in Saudi Arabia where it failed to defend Saudi oil fields from the drones, Iranian-made drones operated by the Houthi. The Patriot is a very bad air defense system, and 
you know, whatever benefits it has, you know, pluses it has, uh, will be immediately eliminated by the fact that you're turning it over to Ukrainians who do not know how to operate it, will be learning how to operate it, and being compelled to operate it for the first time in combat. Anybody operating the system on the ground in Ukraine will die. Thank you for that very succinct information. I think that kind of gives us what we need to understand that Patriot deal. So the Patriot, I mean, you're right. Theodore Postal testified in front of Congress many years ago about its inefficacy and all of that. I I imagine there are some improvements, but there's not going to be a game changer in any form or fashion other than to escalate the situation, it sounds like. Hey, Scott, last thing, just tell us how people can access some of your ongoing analyses. You know, I know you do a weekly program. So tell us about that so we can get you out of here. And and thank you so much for the time tonight. Well, I do a a podcast, Ask the Inspector, on U.S. Tour of Duty. It's uh, co-hosted with uh, Jeff Norman, a a longtime uh, friend and associate. Uh, We do two episodes a week, um, one on Tuesday uh, between three and four. Four, uh, we call it the lightning round. I'm compelled to answer questions within a three-minute time limit, and uh, we do a more expanded version on uh, Thursday or Friday nights, primarily Friday, but like this week, we'll be doing it Thursday, uh, starting at eight o'clock, where I will answer questions uh, in a more expanded version. We also maintain a, a website, scottritterextra.com, and on that, all of my interviews, for including this one, when you post the link, will be are posted along with all the articles I write. I have a Substack. Uh, that's linked to that, where I write unique uh, content for the Substack only. Uh, there's no firewall uh, or paywall. That's that's the primary one-stop shop, I guess, for uh, for anything I do is the scottritterextra.com. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, thank you so much for, for today. And last, can we do a, a super fast lightning round, like cut your three minutes to like one minute? But what would you just tell folks on the way out here about what to expect of when this uh, Russian offensive is going to occur? Because it sounds to me that you're very clear that this is turned into a military operation. And can you just uh, address that for a minute or so? Well, the focal point right now uh, on the battlefield is the the area around the city of Bakhmut, which is sort of the Gordian knot of the Ukrainian defenses. Ukrainians are um, pouring everything they have into preventing Bakhmut from falling. If Bakhmut falls, uh, the Russians will be able to unravel the totality of the Ukrainian defensive line. And I think that this is what we're going to see is uh, Russians uh, finalizing the destruction of the Ukrainian defensive belt and then using these uh, 10 to 15 divisions worth of troops that are coming in from the freshly mobilized together with existing combat forces to promote the defeat of the Ukrainian armed forces. I think we're going to see an absolute military collapse, a routing magnitude unimaginable in modern times, but it's going to be a a decisive Russian victory that's going to continue through the winter into the spring. And I think this war will be wrapped up by the end of summer. Very good. Well, Scott, thank you so much. I just want to ask our listeners to, this is such important information that's completely outside of our mainstream informational base that most of us have been forming our opinions around up and down when it comes to this conflict and stuff. And so thank you so much for pulling the curtain back and appreciate and look forward to your future analyses into the future. So thank you, Scott Ritter. All right. Thanks for having me. It sounds like you're a little under the weather. So thank you for, for, for roughing it out for me, man. All right. Well, you take care and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Have a happy holiday. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Don't be late.